Hello and welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza. It's a medical podcast about life in medicine. But this is not a technical podcast. We're not going to talk about CFTR channels and toll-like receptors here. What we're discussing is the real-life career in medicine and what different specialties are like. Now, if you're a medical student, one of the biggest concerns you'll have early on and continuing for much of your medical school degree and even beyond is whether you go into a medical or a surgical route. This is a question people will ask you. Even people not in medicine will come up to you at dinner parties and say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up and what specialty do you want to do? So medical versus surgery is a big distinction that people make. Fortunately, today we're going to be talking about surgery and specifically we're going to be covering surgical oncology because we're very fortunate to have an excellent guest with us, Dr. Julie. Now she's a surgical oncologist who's managed to combine a career as a surgeon with some really, really interesting life activities. So just to name a few, she's done Ironman triathlons and just between you and me, she's a world champion in long course. So pretty impressive. We'll get into more of that later. So I want to welcome on the show, Dr. Julie. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Now, the first thing I have to ask before we get into your very interesting, crazy exercise regimes is what is surgical oncology? Uh, so surgical oncology is well basically treating cancer surgically. Um, and it's quite a general term. In most cases, it refers to people who uh, do, in Australia, it refers to people who do melanoma and breast surgery or melanoma and sarcoma surgery. Uh, for myself, I do uh, melanoma and other skin cancers, um, soft tissue sarcomas, and I've combined that with a bit of thyroid and parathyroid work and head and neck. Mm, so that sounds like quite a variety to me. So you do some skin work, which is melanoma, you do some soft tissue stuff, so that's sarcoma, and head and neck with thyroid stuff. So actually, sub, um, this is a subspecialty, isn't it, of general surgery, but it doesn't mean that you just have to focus on one thing. No, no. So I think um, I did my training in general surgery, which gives you a very good foundation. So you could be a general surgeon um, treating anything from um, hernias to stomach cancer um, or melanoma um, or you can choose to subspecialize um, in one of your know, like upper GI or uh, colorectal endocrine surgery so it, you do have a lot of choices. Now how did you know that you wanted to get into surgical oncology? Well it wasn't like I was born and decided that I wanted to become a surgical oncologist and in fact my career path has sort of meandered a little hasn't been a direct route to where I've where I am now so for example when I was in year 12 I didn't know what I wanted to do and I ended up starting in science law mm -hmm. um, and after a year of law couldn't see myself as a lawyer so I then continued with my science degree and all them in the meantime I sort of had this thing in the back of my head saying, oh, maybe you should have done medicine. So I actually transferred to medicine in my third year at uni, finished my science degree concurrently with the first two years of medicine. Wow. And um, so finished medicine. And during med school, I was interested in most things. There were some things that I didn't like, and I knew I definitely didn't want to become an obstetrician, for example. Um, but I did enjoy most things, both in medicine and surgery and um, at various times I wanted to become a sports physician, a rheumatologist, 
uh, orthopedic surgeon. And so when I was an intern, I was sort of more interested in orthopedics. And um, I was sort of focused on that for a while. But um, as part of my med student, in, in my med student days, I was awarded a rural cadetship which meant that I had to spend two of the first three or so years post-grad in the country. So I spent my internship in Sydney and then I went to the country. And it was there, so I was still interested in orthopaedics, but um, my second year in the country I started, I was an unaccredited general surgical registrar. And I remember being really surprised at how much I enjoyed the job. and. So I sort of changed my focus from orthopaedics to general surgery. And um, so that's how I ended up sort of being headed towards general surgery. The pathway to general surgery, getting onto the scheme can be quite challenging. Um, and it also, the, the things you need to do in order to get on change quite regularly. So you need to keep an eye out on those things. Um, so I eventually got on to general surgical training and I really wasn't sure whether I wanted to subspecialize or be a general surgeon and originally I was thinking I would end up being a rural general surgeon and that w and however I did have an interest in thyroid um, surgery and I was given the opportunity to do my a, a year of fellowship in um, head and neck and surgical oncology at Westmead. And that was where I had lots of exposure to thyroid surgery, but I was exposed to melanoma and soft tissue sarcoma for the first time because I hadn't um, done that term as a registrar. And again, it was sort of something that really clicked with me and I, I think I was quite heavily influenced by the surgical oncologist at that time uh, with whom I got on very well and who encouraged me um, and my interest in that area. So uh, that's basically how I ended up doing surgical oncology. So I've retained a little bit of an interest in head and neck, but my main practice is, would be surgical oncology, sort of melanoma and, and sarcoma. Excellent. I think your journey is really interesting and it raises some um, really good considerations for people because uh, although you've discovered your dream job now, surgical oncology, um, it was something that you sort of stumbled across through a process of um, chucking out what you didn't like so much and embracing what you did like. So it kind of shows people you don't have to be set on one particular specialty from the very first day you enter medical school. It's really a process of filtering through things. So it sounds by um, from it that you decided on this, you know, after you were already a couple of years as a doctor. So it wasn't something from medical school. Oh, definitely. So I think, um, I think it, a lot of the time, I think it would have been easier if I knew what I wanted to do from the start. And yeah, there are some people that I knew who always seemed to know exactly where they were going and sort of were sort of uh, very focused and uh, motivated. But um, whereas I sort of, yeah, as I said, meandered a little. Um, but 
I think you, it's like doing the HSC, you know, when you're doing the HSC, mm. it's just a gateway. It doesn't mean that you have to continue on the pathway that you start. So you can branch off and, you know, different opportunities arise at different times. And you may find that some things you absolutely hate that you thought you would have liked. So you mm. can change career uh, midpoint. Yeah, and certainly um, these preferences will be individual to each person. But for you, how did you figure out what you didn't like and what you did like? What were the characteristics that appealed to you and didn't appeal to you? Um, I think I like surgery because um, it's very what you do for patients is very tangible. So you know, say for example with orthopedics, if the bone's broken, you fix it up, and the patient can walk or use their arm or whatever again. Um, What I do now with cancer surgery, you know, if you remove the tumour and um, you know, cure the, well, sometimes cure the patient from their cancer or mm-hmm. definitely treat, you know, do something that makes a, a, an immediate difference. Um, and certainly some people I went to med school with were a bit surprised that I ended up doing surgery because they thought I was, well, someone said, oh, you're too smart to do orthopaedics, <laughs> Julie, um, which, you know, I think is a bit it's a compliment um, and not a compliment. Well, it's a it's sort of a compliment, but it's not very complimentary of orthopedic surgeons. So, um, it yeah. So I think um, keeping an open mind about mm. career choices and career pathways, because yeah. you know, I've ended up working in Sydney, whereas you know, when I was a med student, I was thinking, oh, well, I'm definitely you know, I'm going to end up working in the country, and that's where I'm from originally yeah. anyway. So it wasn't such a foreign concept. Yeah, so definitely um, the type of work you do and the sort of tangibility of the results is one thing. Location, rural versus urban is one thing. What about hours? How much of a role do you think that plays? Um, I think when I chose surgical oncology, I wasn't really looking at the hours. Um, But I think um, it is a specialty where... Um, I don't have too many inpatients in hospital. Mm. When I have patients in hospital, generally they're not very sick. Um, this is t- talking about elective opera- um, surge- um, patients. Um, if I'm on call for general surgery, the patients are sicker and um, require more time. But I think it's a specialty that you can tailor so you can have you know, quite a good lifestyle or time to do things other than work which I think is very important. Um, I've also set up myself up so I'm not travelling between 10 different hospitals and yep. battling the traffic because you need to remember whenever you work at one hospital, it usually comes with its own on-call and things. So um, yeah, some people may want to work like that, but um, I certainly sort of wanted to keep most of my activities in within one sort of suburb. So yep. Um, and I don't live too far away, so I'm not spending a huge amount of time commuting, so yep. it, which frees up my time. Right, and at this stage in your career, of course, you're quite well established in the field of surgical oncology. So what about when you were going through your training? At what point were you able to develop this flexibility? Hmm. So when you're training, you don't have as much um, say in what you do with your time because you have to be work every day during the week and you have over rostered overtime you might have unrostered overtime so when I finished all that and was a consultant I found one of the best things was having more power over my time yep. um, and 
you know, it depends on what your financial commitments are as to how much you need to work. Um, and I think I've found that I always prefer having an outside interest apart from work and it is easier once you're a boss but it's not impossible while you're working you know a junior doctor or registrar to have some other interests I think it requires a bit of commitment to that but um, yeah it's certainly possible and I think it's a very healthy way to approach that having said that the six months before I did my final my fellowship exam was pretty miserable because I didn't do anything <laughs> apart from work and study and do study groups so yeah but, but that was only yeah. a temporary <laughs> <laughs> so we definitely know that you have um, quite a few interesting um, pastimes which I'm sure our listeners are very curious to hear about but before we let them know uh, we're going to cover just a little bit more about surgery and get some of the serious stuff out of the way so uh, in surgery, of course, it's not all just doing operations. There's also patient interaction. Um, so how much of your time is split between, say, procedural things and um, dealing with patients and whatever else you have on? So I think I spend far more time with patients than I do uh, operating on them. Mm-hmm. And I think people can quite easily think of surgery as oh, that all we do is operate on patients and chop things out and sew things back together and, and so on but um, you actually have to spend a lot of time talking to patients uh, because you know you need to assess them whether they're um, well you need to diagnose their problem and work out what the best plan of management because given their um, comorbidities and um, circumstances and, and the disease and then you see them afterwards and because I'm of the type of work I do I do have to keep seeing the patients for follow-up because checking for recurrence of their cancer whereas some other types of surgery once uh, the patient's recovered and has been through that post-operative period you don't necessarily need to see them again so I quite like the fact that I get to um, see my patients um, for and generally most melanoma patients, for example, would be seen for five years um, after their um, initial operation. Uh, so you do get to know people, and I quite like um, talking to patients, and you meet certainly meet a, quite a range of people. Yeah, and definitely the field being surgical oncology, they're going through quite a life-changing experience as well. Well, I think also with surgery, you need to develop, try to develop a degree of trust between yourself and the patient because you're there you know you're operating on someone it's quite a big deal it's a big deal to the person and when you first start performing surgery it's quite daunting to you know attack with the scalpel and um, I think it's important to um, develop a, a good rapport with the patient so um, you, it helps um, you to treat them successfully I think yeah, and what are the biggest concerns that are normally running through patients' heads when they come to you? Well, particularly with well, melanoma and sarcoma, I mean, it's cancer, and cancer is very stressful. And it doesn't really matter whether the cancer's what we think is a minor thing or not. A lot of people think it's, it's a major thing. It might be the first time that they've had something happen to them, and you get melanoma in quite young people, so... Yeah, if you're in your 20s, de- developing a melanoma is the last thing you'd sort of ex- be expecting. And 
So it's quite um, stressful and um, it can be, you can forget how stressful it is for patients sometimes, I think, unless you're careful to put yourself back in their shoes a little bit. Um, you can't, you need to um, be reassuring so um, and stable, I guess. <laughs> um, but you, yeah, it, it can be difficult if you've got someone who has quite an aggressive cancer, for example, to have that conversation with them. And the interesting thing about cancer, if it can be called interesting, is it's quite a binary diagnosis. Like, have you previously had cancer? It's kind of a yes or no thing. It's not like, say, mood changes. Are you happy today? Yes or no. And then the next day you might feel sad. The next day you feel happy with, with cancer. Or, or have you ever gone to jail? Or have you ever killed someone? You know, these kinds of things, it's a yes or no. So um, either you have or you haven't. So it definitely is quite a significant thing. Now, with all the patients that come to you, have they already had their diagnosis? Um, I guess a majority of them have. Um, and sometimes if I am diagnosing someone with cancer, usually it's because I'm following them up after their initial treatment and they've developed a recurrence mm -hmm. or a metastasis. And um, the latter is quite, you know, a life-changing and, yeah. you know, a poor prognostic thing and is difficult to talk to them about. And what do you think is the best way to deliver that kind of news? Any general processes or any tips? Well, I think I don't think there's I don't think there's a one size fits all. Um, it will depend on the patient. So uh, some people want to know, well, how long have I got? And some people want to know all the nitty gritty. Some people come to you and they've googled the diagnosis and. Uh, either stressed quite rightly because they've um, or they've uh, misinterpreted what their pathology is and they've gotten into a real panic about something that isn't such a as, as serious as they think um, and I don't I think so you sort of need to be a little bit cognizant of how much they want to know so you need to you need to tell them what's what the mm. diagnosis is and I find that um, if you can have a plan that you outline with them so that you're not just saying, oh, look, you've got metastatic melanoma, you know, goodbye. You say, you know, you've got the metastatic melanoma and this is what we're going to do. So, and um, you take it from there. And I think it's, um, although it's very stressful still, um, I think if you have um, a plan of attack for the problem, um, it, it can be a bit more reassuring than just sort of saying you've got this so yeah it's bad and <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like something you said earlier where you said that surgery has a tangible sort of outcome like you're really actively fixing something. Um, unfortunately at its core uh, cancer is somewhat an unhappy thing so we're trying to fix a kind of pathology so of course there will be times where it gets a bit emotional so overall how much do you think your work affects your mood or do you think it's quite possible to have that separation? Um, I think it can be difficult to ha keep the separation particularly if you know the patients or mm. if they're young or you know um, but and it can affect your mood um, it's not necessarily something you, you notice at the time but it's sort of 
when you finish work and maybe you've had a run of people who've come with bad disease and mm. you've had to try and explain them and it, it does take a lot of emotional energy to be supportive because you can't you need to be sort of strong for the patient yeah. um and uh yeah it, it does take a lot of energy yeah and any uh, tips for coping i suppose hobbies would certainly be one yeah i think hobbies and um having someone to talk to about it as well can be helpful as well so yeah but um and just taking the time to relax and and sort of do something mindless is quite helpful yeah and so what do you think is the most difficult part of your field overall um i think is the most difficult part is the fact that we can't cure everyone Mm. and that even though you do the best operation that you can uh, the cancer is aggressive uh, or the patient is unwell or things can happen that you have no control over so I think um, the sense of powerlessness is probably one of the hardest things so even you know you could have someone who has a fairly good prognostic tumour to start with and then a couple of years later, unexpectedly, they mm. develop further disease, um, which is can be hard for everyone to deal with. Yeah. Overall, um, do you think it's mostly happy news or, or bad news across all your patients? Um, I think, well, f- for example, in melanoma. In Australia, most melanomas are diagnosed v- very early, mm. and so therefore most of them are cured. Um, if all I did was see sarcoma patients, then it's different because that's Mm -hmm. a different kettle of fish Um, and thyroid cancers have the generally the better prognosis so they're sort of less stressful but I think they're still a cancer and um, I never tell patients oh yeah if you have to have a cancer have thyroid cancer which is something that's often said because I think any cancer is stressful and Mm -hmm. um, life-changing um, so, you know, I just say, well, thyroid cancer is a good prognosis and for one type, the papillary thyroid cancer, you know, they say 95 to 99% are still alive. Uh, yeah, yep. it's got a 10 year survival rate of that. So it's very unlikely that after you've had the surgery that it's going to be a problem. So it's a very different conversation to seeing someone who's got an aggressive sarcoma where, you know, they have a higher, uh, risk of mortality from it. Yeah, and, and that's a very real point that the impact on uh, people can be very different. So it's yes. not it's not really the case that we could say, you know, there's a better cancer to have than something else or would you rather have your leg cut off or your arm crushed by a piano? It's very hard to make that comparison because on that person's life it could certainly have a very individual impact. Uh, maybe depending on their life goals or what occupation they're in, that could have um, a huge result. But we've sort of got the conversation a bit on a downer, which we're going to correct now by talking about what are the really good parts of your job? Um, Well, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it is nice to help people. Um, And, you know, as with the the whole thing of surgery and removing tumours is very satisfying. Mm. Um, I generally enjoy dealing with patients um, and talking to people which is interesting because I'm not a particularly outgoing sort of person but I'm in this role I quite like it Um, and I think I also like the fact 
the other thing that attracted me to melanoma sarcoma, they're just interesting diseases and particularly melanoma can metastasize anywhere. It does weird things. Some people um, can have metastatic disease in their lungs, have that treated and have no other problems and survive. Whereas in other people, it's very aggressive and um, spreads very quickly and they die very quickly. Um, and it's been a very exciting field um, of research and um, development in um, drug therapy in the last five to 10 years. So it's been very interesting to be working in that field. Yeah, so lots of monoclonal antibodies. Well, I don't know if lots is the right word, but monoclonal antibodies coming out for um, melanoma, which certainly helps with the prognosis yeah. somewhat. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. excellent news. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think it was it was very depressing to be a medical oncologist who specialised in melanoma <laughs> 10 years ago, or, yeah, because really there was nothing really they could do for patients with stage 4 disease, whereas now there are some options that yeah. are m- much more effective. Yeah, excellent. Now, we know that what people are really listening to this podcast for is to hear about the cool things that you do. So this is proof that doctors can be um, really well-rounded people and do some very interesting things outside medicine. So nobody actually cares about surgical oncology. Um, I'm just joking. Um, So can you tell us about some of your outside of medical interests? Now, world champion in long course, what is that? Um, So so it was a, a triathlon and triathlons can be different distances. So ranging from something that maybe takes an hour, just over an hour to finish to Ironman, which is, you know, well, the cutoff time for finishing is 17 hours. And the, Wait, Sorry, did you say 17 hours? Yes. <laughs> oh yes. my gosh. All right. Um, so they're different distances. And um, I started doing triath... Well, I actually was used to just do running. And um, after I finished my fellowship exam in surgery and was probably the most unfit I'd ever been in my life I just started to get back into doing some exercise and I was doing a little bit of swimming but I started doing more running and because I'd always wanted to do a marathon so um, I did I started doing marathons and I have a sister who is really into triathlon and she moved to Sydney for a couple of years uh, a few years ago and I got drawn into the vortex that is triathlon uh, through her and um, sort of have got more and more into the sport and last year I did the World Long Course Championships with, and Long Course Triathlon consists of a 4km swim, 120km bike and a 30k run. 120 kilometers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had never done that distance before and um, didn't know how I'd go and I actually won my age group. So um, Amazing. Which was, yeah, very unexpected and satisfying. So um, and my latest goal is I've entered an Ironman, which mm. is even was slightly longer than the long course. So... Uh, and it's a 3.8 kilometer swim, 180 kilometer bike, and a marathon, which is 42 kilometers. So, when you put, when you say the figures for the distances <laughs> that loud, it's quite insane. And yeah. I do appreciate that I am quite crazy for pursuing these <laughs> things, but um, I enjoy the challenge, and I have always enjoyed sport. So, um, I find that it's 
quite a good way of taking my mind off things, um, stress relief. Uh, but you know, sports. Yeah, you know, it's good to be fit mm. and in terms of overall health. So, but I do acknowledge that I spend a lot of time. Yeah, there are. If you're interested in having a well-rounded life, you don't have to do triathlon because <laughs> uh, it is quite a crazy thing to do. Um, but I think. As a general rule, it's nice to just do something that's a bit different and have your own interests outside of medicine. Yeah, I, I think the, the most ironic part is that you're doing something crazy to keep yourself sane. Yes. But I'm totally not judging. It's really <laughs> awesome. And I think when we were talking before the interview, you told me the longest run you'd ever done was 45 kilometres. Yeah, so that was a race that is um, done in the Blue Mountains. It's called the Six Foot Track Marathon. Mm-hmm. So it's slightly longer than a marathon, and I did that quite a f- well a few years ago now and um, that I I was quite ill prepared for it and um, didn't really enjoy it <laughs> and it almost in fact it almost put me off running completely but I persisted and I, I did more marathons after that but um, certainly during the long course last year was probably the hardest uh, race I've ever done not because of the length but the weather was appalling it was <laughs> very hot and humid it got to about 36 degrees while we we're doing the run and it was very windy so uh, it made it very challenging <laughs> and what do you think about when you're doing this like do you think about your patients or about medicine or just about life um during a race generally i'm thinking about the race so um because you can't just you can't think of something in as a 120 kilometer ride, you know, I've got, I've got 120 kilometers. Oh, now I've got 118 to go, 170. Because you, you, mm. it's you've got to break it down into little chunks, and it's important in a long race like that to make sure you're drinking regularly and um, having your nutrition regularly, so you don't die of um, <laughs> low blood sugar. <laughs> That'd be not good. Um, so there are lots of things to, and you know how fast you're going, and you know, so there are lots of things in the race that keep you in the moment sort of thing so um you know i might think you know by the time you're on a run and if it's a long run if the run's long you might think of you know some people that you want to run hard for or whatever but um generally i've just pretty much focused on what pace i'm running at and how long i've got to go and when am i going to have my next drink of water and all that sort Mm. of thing so the time actually does go past a lot quicker than you would think um, it's more on training runs and rides that I would think about patients and and things and sometimes it's not helpful and um, it is can be sometimes hard to leave the work at home um, and particularly if you have stressful things that are happening with patients um, it can be very difficult to put them out of your mind mm. but usually by the end of the ride it's sort of thinking about something else um, so um, yeah, I think it's good to try to be uh, mindful of things as well. So, um, you know, if I'm doing a ride in the early morning or something, I always try to notice the sunrise and how beautiful yeah. the sky is or, you know, the bush. Yeah, I do a lot of cycling um, up the old Pacific Highway, so through this beautiful bush and uh, the views can be really nice. So, um, yeah, it's good to sort of try and practice mindfulness while you're doing that sort of thing yeah and that's just a general uh philosophy for for life that helps as well yeah yeah Yeah. now just before we link this back to medicine i'm really curious what is the first thing you do when you get home after a huge marathon 
Is it eat, sleep, shower? Um, <laughs> Hopefully shower. <laughs> yeah. So mm, I guess if if I've done... So it, it can be hard. It, it can actually be challenging not just to try do the long training but to combine it with your other commitments. So, for example, on Saturday, last Saturday... I had to do a five-hour run and half a five-hour ride and half-hour run in the morning, and so I got up at the crack of dawn to do that. Did that. I drove home from where I did that, and I couldn't just relax. I actually had to have a quick shower and then go to the hospital to do a ward round. Wow. Um, and then I could come home and rela- and sort of die. Yeah. Um, so it, it can. So if I sometimes it can be. Well, challenging. I mean, you have to do what you have. You know, you have to mm-hmm. see your patients and um, be around for them. So, um, and then the next day, I think I went and saw the patient before I went and did right, whatever right. session I had to do. So, um, it can be a bit tricky to combine doing things, but I think it certainly is possible. Um, but after a, a long ride or, or a run. I like, if it's hot, I like jumping in the pool and relaxing, but usually I eat (laughs) and I lie down on the couch on our back porch and just relax and uh, read and and sort of maybe sleep a bit. (laughs) Sounds very well deserved. Now, the reason we've just spent a little bit of time talking about this is because that level of fitness is pretty amazing. But also the second reason is it really proves to you that you can have a well-rounded life um, in medicine. So are there any tips that you would give to people um, so that they can help maintain this? Because I see a lot of medical students and doctors who just give up what they love and they they talk in terms of the past, like, oh yeah, I used to do um, this sport and you know I don't do it anymore, but I'm just gonna talk about the days when I used to. So how do you, you know, do that in the present? Well, I think it's being aware of what you're spending your time on because it is really easy to get sucked into. All you do is go to work and or study um, and, you know, you say, oh, no, I can't do that because it's too hard to fit in. But you can fit in stuff um, and you may not be able to do what you did before, but you might be able to do something different. So... Um, I think, for example, when I was at university, um, I went from, so I had to leave home to come down to Sydney for uni, and so I left all my usual activities that I did at home, and I did a lot of different things. And it was a matter of, uh, and there were a couple of years where I didn't do a lot of stuff apart from uni and maybe some social, you know, socialising at uni. Um, and then I felt quite one-dimensional, one yeah. and... So I did different things. So like I joined the university choir and then I joined the rowing club and started rowing. And, you know, these were like particularly the rowing I'd never done before because I grew up in the country. We didn't, there wasn't a lot of water around. Um, and I managed to combine that with medicine. So I was still doing a lot of training for rowing in my final year of med when my friends were going, why are you still doing all this training? We've got exams coming up. So, yeah. but I found it uh, gave me a bit of, you know, perspective and time to, was again, stress relief. Um, so I think first of all is recognising that you are being becoming one dimensional and then thinking about what you can do to 
improve things. So, you know, not everyone has to do triathlon. I mean, triathlon is very time consuming, but, you know, even just going for a 20 minute walk a day or going for even better arranging with your friends to do something um, that's different to work and med school. So, or work or whatever you might be doing in your life. So, um, and then see how you go and you can sort of gradually increase it. Because when I first started doing sort of regular sport after my final exam in surgery, I wasn't doing way near the amount I was doing now and I wouldn't have imagined spending the time I do now. But it's just sort of increased with that. And I think I'm very lucky that I have a very supportive husband who does a lot of the cooking. So <laughs> when I get home, you know, I don't have to worry about cooking dinner um, at night, So, uh, which is very helpful. So I think that living in a sympathetic uh, environment that is sympathetic to your needs is also yep. um, quite crucial. So the advice there is find a partner who can cook and yes. clean and do lots of things. <laughs> um, excellent. So one attitude that I find to be quite common is, oh, you know, I'm just stressed right now while I'm studying. I'll pick up these activities later on. So do you think that's safe or not safe? Well, I don't know the, about safe, but um, I think there are times where you, you do have to just focus on work. And, you know, there are times, you know, I, I'm on call for general surgery, so that limits what I can do in terms mm -hmm. of training because I'm not going to go for a ride, you know, 50 kilometres north of Sydney where I'm unavailable to come back. So you do have to uh, modify your activities at some time. So, But I think you do need to remember not to fall into the trap of, um, of staying in that sort of um, routine. So, you know, if you've got exams coming up in something, obviously that's where all of your energies are going to be focused, but you might, it might be good just to, you know, if you've got a spare 10 minutes to do something completely different, you know, if you're into meditating or if you want to go for a walk or, you know, phone a friend or, you know, play your favourite game on the internet or whatever. <laughs> so I think it's important just to, to disconnect from the high pressure uh, scene, even if it's for just a little while. And it can be very difficult to do that. Um, and especially, you know, if you are a med student, it can, like the exams are very daunting. And then, you know, you've got all the pressure about where you're going to go in the future. And, you know, everyone else seems to know what they're doing. Why don't I know? Why don't I know? Except, so I think, it's with most things it's best to just break them down into little bits and tick them off as you've done them I think that's kind of like running a marathon just a section at a time yeah, yeah yeah and you know studying for a huge exam like a surgical final exam is very huge and so I just broke it down into I, I write lists and I gain a lot of satisfaction from ticking things off even if they're really little <laughs> things um, it's very satisfying to do that uh, so I think um, breaking big goals into little steps is very um, useful. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'd like to end this on one really good last piece of wisdom, which is um, what advice do you have for people who want to get onto, say, the general surgery training program or get onto surgical, surgical oncology? What can they do? Um, so if you want to do surgery I think it's important to talk to people who are doing surgery whether that be 
uh, more junior people like registrars, fellows, consul or consultants. Um, and so that you can get as much information about what sort of a lifestyle it is because um, the surgical lifestyle can be difficult. Um, and if you're on call a lot, if you have lots of sick patients, um, it's, you know, can be um, quite a burden. Uh, but not all surgery or surgical careers have to be like that. And it is possible to um, have a career that is compatible with your lifestyle. And if, you know, say for example, you have children and you want to spend time, you know, bring up your kids or work part-time, it's not, it can be difficult to do, but it's not impossible. And particularly with surgical training, um, you know, most people don't do part-time training, but there are options available if, uh, if you need to pursue, go down that line. And to find those options, it's a matter of talking to people. So I think talking to people, finding out what the career involves. Um, if you know that you want to do, do surgery, then um, I think as a medical student, I think there are surgical clubs in most of the unis, so getting involved with that. So you get more exposure to surgeons and surgical stuff. Um, going as a sort of a junior doctor, through the College of Surgeons, there's this JDOCS program, um, which is an educational program for junior doctors. Um, be aware of what the selection criteria are for surgical training. And, you know, for example, one component is CV scoring, and they score things like um, publications and presentations and higher degrees, and if you teach on a regular basis. So, but it's a matter of it, the um, requirements are different for different specialties as well. So it's a matter of being familiar with those and they're all available on the College of Surgeons website. Um, I think you need to make sure you enjoy the work. So don't just choose surgery because you think it's a high profile <laughs> thing to do that you know people are all going to venerate you forever. <laughs> um, you need to actually enjoy the work as well because you know you spend a whole lot of your life at work. You know whether you have a good work-life balance or not, um, a great proportion of your life is spent at work. So you want to make sure that you're doing something that you enjoy. Um, yeah, I think that's the main thing. So just being involved. Um, most people um, are quite happy to talk to. Well. I'm speaking for myself, I guess. So <laughs> if, if you have questions about surgical training or interest, most, most people are quite happy to talk to you about it. Um, if you want to, you know, if you're as a student, you could do your elective in surgery um, to give, get more exposure. Um, if you have spare time, you go to the operating theatre. If you, you know, if you can link up with a registrar who says, oh, look, come to our theatre list. You know, most people... Um, you know, if you're there and show an interest, uh, most people will encourage that. All right, excellent. Well, it's been amazing having you on the show. I think it's great that you can take a break from your 17-hour triathlons and busy work. Uh, well, <laughs> hopefully uh, it won't take me 17 hours to do the Ironman, but yeah. <laughs> 
We'll see. It, yeah, it just it's amazing that you can't sleep during that time. It's just 17 hours of pure exercise. Yeah, well, yeah, so that that's the cutoff time. So there are people who take that long or even longer to do the distance but wow. I'm hoping that I'll be it'll be a lot faster for me <laughs> well um, thank you very much and I think you've given some excellent wisdom um, some practical tips and some um, great insight into how surgical oncology really is so thank you so much and we look forward to having our listeners in the next episode okay thank you for having me